Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by lionrock.life. So we went to the appointment. We stayed with some friends there and, you know, had full belief that we would just be there for a couple of days and have a couple of appointments and then come home. And the doctor said, I, I want to admit him. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, I didn't have any experience with psychiatric hospitalization with anyone. I didn't know anything about anything. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today we have Heather Hutchison. Heather's life changed drastically when her son began struggling with mental illness as a very young child. When he was three years old, she found herself sitting across from his doctor as he recommended psychiatric hospitalization. This was the first, but not the last, that she had to do something very similar as a result of the extreme behavior and violence that she attempted to manage on a daily basis. All along the way, her own guilt around the situation was compounded by other people trying to suggest that what was happening was in some way her fault. What followed were 13 hospitalizations, each promising that life would move towards something more, quote, normal but the problems remained upon each return. Eventually, after some particularly explosive incidents, her son was admitted to a residential treatment program at the age of 15. She felt such complicated emotions. She didn't want him in that setting, and she also felt immense guilt because there was a sense of relief. She prayed that maybe someone there would be able to help them. What followed was deep depression and a grief process that was incredibly complex, all while trying to do what was right for her and her other three children. Today, she and her son have a great relationship, and Heather uses her story to help other families not feel so alone in a situation that can feel as lonely as anything. She also shares her story with teachers, clinicians, and parents in order to help them understand the unique limitations of families going through something similar. I hope this episode makes it far and wide because it is my belief that many parents are dealing with things similar to what Heather's family went through behind closed doors. More importantly, it is my belief that those parents do not know that they, one, aren't alone, and two, that there are resources out there to help them. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and feel inspired by this mother's willingness to fight tooth and nail to help her child get help. So without further ado, I give you Heather Hutchison. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Heather, thank you for being here. I'm really glad to be here. I don't think I've ever told my story to the public like this, like all in one bite. I'm really excited. Well, we I appreciate you talking about your experience because I think that there are a lot of people who probably relate in the shadows and that is exactly what we don't want. We want people to feel community. To that end, well, let's start with how many children do you have? 
have four. Okay. So I have three sons and then a daughter. And I've been a single mom for, gosh, I guess it's 11 years next month. And how old are your kids? My oldest son is almost 22. His birthday is in just a few weeks. My next son is 18. Then my youngest son just turned 17 yesterday. And my daughter is 15. Awesome. So you are in the thick of it, man. Absolutely am. And they all still live here. And yeah, it is. It's a party. A lot of fun. Tell me about what happened when you were living on Marine Base in Georgia. Were you in the military? What were the circumstances around that time? No. So I was married to a Marine and we're both from Virginia and had been stationed up here at Quantico for the first gosh, I guess about two years of our marriage. And then he was sent to Georgia and to a tiny little base that had maybe 500 Marines on it or so. It's mostly run by civilians and way down deep in Southwest Georgia. And we were sent there and we kind of got, I think, forgotten a little bit because we were there for seven years. So (laughs) we got stuck there for a while. Which son was it that you ended up in the hospital with? My oldest son. Samuel was a fantastic baby. You know, I remember him nursing and he and I was like, you know, with all my friends, I'm like, why is this so hard for you? Like this piece of cake. I got humbled with my second child. Don't worry. But no, he nursed really easily and very quickly and then wanted to be put down. Now, looking back, I can see that that was probably a sensory thing. Like he didn't really want to be held, you know, but at the time I was like, oh, this is great. And he just didn't cry a whole lot. And he would eat whatever foods I gave him and kind of was content just entertaining himself. And so I was like, man, this is easy peasy. Like I am rocking this thing, you know? So, and I had been a nanny and I had babysat, you know, I mean like intensely, like with people for weeks at a time while they went on vacation. So I was like, oh yeah, it's probably, I'm just probably really good at this. So I love you. <laughs> I, mean, I really, I really felt that that way for about 15 months. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, fantastic. And then he stopped sleeping and he never was a big napper, but that was, that was fine. You know, but around 15 months, I was like, mm, he's not napping and he's not really sleeping at night, you know, but first of all, it's my first child. And also they're little, like they go through all sorts of changes all the time. And so it took me a couple of months before I started realizing like, like, this is not getting better. You know, like he is not moving into a new stage. He's not sleeping better. And I thought I probably should talk to the doctor. So, you know, I went to the pediatrician to say like, oh, he's really not sleeping. And of course that when you're not sleeping, it makes you crankier, you know? And he had always been high energy, even from in the womb. Like he was the kid that, you know, when I was pregnant with him, I mean, I think he was doing karate in there, gymnastics or something. And that's how he was on the outside, curious. And then the meltdown started, you know? And so he was, he's probably a boomer age-wise, I'm looking back. And he kind of was like, you know, it's your first kid. He's a boy. They don't sleep. They're not going to sleep sometimes. He'll grow out of it or whatever. And so I left and then I came back and I was like, he's not sleeping. And he's... How much was he sleeping? As he got a little older, so like into like his second year and third year, I mean, it kept going on, but probably by about two years old into three, there were 24 hour periods of time where he would maybe sleep four hours. Okay. So like not sleeping. Not at all. Okay. No. And he's not crying. Like, it's not like he was in his crib and he's screaming because he wants me to come get him. Like he's just awake. Like he wants to play. He wants to do stuff. He wants to watch TV and I'm exhausted. And as he got a little older and then wasn't in a crib anymore, you know, like two and three, he would just 
come out into the living room and turn on the TV and be sitting there. I mean, I remember I came out once he had a big bag of potato chips and I was like watching TV like he's a teenager, you know, and he's like three years old. I'm like, what in the hell? And he, he just didn't sleep. But I struggle with this even today at some level. There, I don't think that there are words that adequately like capture the experience, you know, because I felt like even as I was sharing it with the doctor, I'm like, this sounds really trite or it doesn't sound as severe as the actual lived experiences. So he just kept blowing me out. And because we're military and the base was so small, there was one pediatrician. And so every time I'm making an appointment, I'm having to see the same person. And so I'm saying he's throwing these, um, I didn't know they were called meltdowns, but I'm like, he's throwing tantrums but like they're lasting hours. I mean, I think maybe now some doctors are like, that happens. Yes, let's get some help. But I think there probably still are some doctors that are like hours, really. You know, it might feel like hours, but is it really five minutes? It, and it wasn't, it was hours. And so he just didn't listen to me over and over. So I got, I mean, I went to appointment after appointment after appointment. And of course, he's perfectly fine while we're there, you know, sitting on the floor and he was a beautiful child with blonde hair and big blue eyes. And he's playing with his little cars. And so it doesn't, like what I'm saying doesn't match what he's seeing at all. So he just kept telling me like, there's nothing wrong. He told me to watch Super Nanny that I needed to spank him and that he needed to go in timeout. Well, none of those things worked. I tried spanking briefly, sadly. And I mean, he all but laughed at me. Like I, his pain tolerance has always been very, very high, which I found is very common with the things that he has. And it just exacerbated the problem. Like I don't, and I was getting to the point where I was like, I'm angry. And if I spank him, I'm going to beat him. You know, I can't spank him. So I didn't. And then time out. Are you kidding? Time out. It's like he climbs the bookshelves. Like, time, are you kidding? You want me to sit on him? I'll sit on him. And then he'll hit me and pull my hair. It was nonsense. So I started begging for an OT evaluation. You know, I was like, can you just give me a referral? Like, it's no skin off your back. You don't have to pay for it. Like, just give me a referral. And he wouldn't. He was like, I just don't think it's necessary. Which Heather today would have been like, I'm not leaving this office until you give me a referral. But I was, you know, I was 24 when I had him and I wasn't bold enough. I was bold enough to keep going back. I honestly, that the boldness to keep going back is impressive. It was selfish in some regard because I was dying. I was like, I can I need help. I cannot do something is wrong. Like I can't do this. And I knew something was wrong. But when you get told over and over and over that it's not, and that maybe it's a discipline problem, even though my gut was like, yeah, no, mm-mm. I allowed that to become my mantra, you know, for a really long time that this is my fault because no one was affirming me. Like there was just no affirmation of, yes, something is really wrong, you know, and not many people saw the behavior that I was seeing. They would see maybe some dangerous behavior. Like he was a flight risk. I mean, he would run out the door, you know, run out of the car when I parked and into the parking lots and he would be aggressive with other kids. And so they saw stuff like that. But I think most people even process that as a discipline issue, you know, like, why can't you keep your kid from leaving the car? And your kid just pushed my kid down the playground, like get your kid under control. So yeah, he wouldn't do it for me. What ended up happening? So the Marine Corps has this fantastic program called New Parent Support. They are made up of registered nurses who can come to your house after you have a baby and see if you need anything, you know, to check in on you, to check in on the baby, see if there are resources that they have. And so I had known this woman, Kelly, we're still friends to this day, and she was our assigned nurse and she came to our house after my second son was born. But he was about five months old when she came for this appointment to just see how it was going, you know, make sure we had everything we needed. So she came to our house and Samuel was sitting 
the way the house was, it was just one big room. It was like the kitchen table here and living space right there. So he was over at the coffee table playing with a puzzle. And she and I were sitting at the table. I'm holding Asher, who's my second son. And she's asking me, you know, how things are going. And I don't want to talk about Asher. Like I have a captive audience, you know? And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's great. Like Asher's fine. The baby's great. But can you, I need help with Samuel, you know? And I also, at that point was really scared that Samuel was going to hurt Asher. You know, I mean, I was really afraid. And so I said, I really need help with him. No one's listening to me. And so I'm telling her kind of these same, I'm telling her about the tantrums and the meltdowns. I'm telling her, you know, all this incredibly impulsive, risky behavior. You know, he doesn't listen. It's just all these things. Doesn't sleep. And again, she's looking at him playing with the puzzle and she's kind of like, Mm, she's like, well, I mean, I think maybe he's, he's a toddler and he just had another baby. Well, he starts getting distracted. And sorry, I can see it in my brain. So I got distracted. Yeah, no, 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 that's okay. And there was a bookshelf kind of across from him and we had a bowl with a beta fish in it. And he said he wanted to hold the fish. And I was like, no, we're not, I'm not going to hold the fish. I'm still trying to talk to her. And he's like, no, I want to hold the fish. And I was like, well, just wait till your dad gets home. You guys can feed it together. That was it. So he went over to the bookshelf. He started to climb it because he wanted to get up there. And he actually wanted to like take the fish out and hold it in his hand. And told him, obviously, you can't do that. He'll die. And that was all it took. And he launched into a meltdown. So I was holding Asher and I picked up the bowl and she came over and took Asher from me and I'm carrying the bowl through the kitchen and he's following after me, hitting me, kicking me, screaming, I have to have it. And it was in this like obsessed, I need to touch the fish. I need to touch the fish. I need to touch the fish, like constant screaming that I went and put it on top of the refrigerator and he just hurled himself up on top of the counter, ran across the counter, was going for the, fr- I mean, it was mayhem. She was just standing, holding Asher, watching us and, you know, I'm pulling him off and he's going back. And so finally I was like, I'm going to have to restrain him. I mean, there's no other way. So I sit down at the table and I put my arms around him in a bear hug and I hooked a leg around his legs. And because he couldn't flail anymore, then he started headbutting me. So he's, you know, headbutting me back here and I'm trying to dodge it. Then he's biting my arms and spitting. And it was a little less than an hour and Kelly was in tears. And at that point I wasn't in tears. I was just numb. A part of me was like, hey. Like somebody is here to witness it, you know? And I knew that his meltdowns kind of had a a cycle to them and I could feel, and I wasn't talking to him, you know, every once in a while I would just say, you know, once you're calm, I'll put you down and I just let him get it all out until finally he just kind of went limp and I let him down and he went back over to his puzzle. Like nothing ever happened. And she was dumbfounded and she was like, Heather, there is nothing about this that is normal. And I was like, okay, this is it. So she and I talked through some things. You know, I started asking questions. I said, I've asked for help. And I mean, I had this captive audience. I am taking it for everything that it's worth. And she made some phone calls. And within two days, we were driving to Augusta, Georgia to go to the children's hospital there because that was the only place that would see, you know, there was a psychiatrist that would see someone that young because it was a couple of months before his fourth birthday. And so our expectation was we're going up there for this appointment to meet with the psychiatrist. And she had, you know, Kelly had prepped him, which I actually think was probably a blessing because a professional was affirming what they had seen and what was happening. So we went to the appointment, we stayed with some friends there and, you know, had full belief that we would just be there for a couple of days and have a couple of appointments and then come home. And the doctor said, I I want to admit him. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, I didn't have any experience with psychiatric hospitalization with anyone. I didn't know anything about anything. Why did he want to admit him at that moment? 
I think he wanted to observe and able to run all sorts of tests, you know, kind of have him in this controlled environment and do everything. And, you know, when I posted talking about this little piece of it on TikTok, which I think maybe is what brought you guys to me and people lost their minds that he was so young and that he was hospitalized, which I get. I mean, it it was shocking. Um, It was devastating. It was appalling. However, now that he's been in so many other acute stays, this one was very different because he was in the children's hospital. It was a, you know, a wing of the children's hospital. It was for psychiatry, but it didn't feel like the psychiatric facilities that he's been in since then. You know, it felt more hospitally, I guess, which probably helped my sanity a little bit. It felt a little bit more familiar than, you know, a psychiatric facility did when we ended up there. You know, and then of course there's a million people in my comments too who were like, it's heavy metals, it's probably pans or pandas or, you know, all these things. And it wasn't. I mean, they did tons of blood work. I have had my thyroid removed because I've had, you know, Graves disease. So they're checking thyroid. I mean, they did everything just to see if there was something going on underlying and there wasn't. Did he have a meltdown while he was admitted? (laughs) No. (laughs) So that played into even more of my, God, this is your fault. Now I know, and he's even able to articulate it now at almost 22 years old. Now I'm aware that that's very, very common. And he also slept. He slept while he was there. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? I mean, not like a normal kid, but you know, like at least a decent amount of time that he slept at night. Why does that happen? I think, or or what they've said. You must've lost. I was, I was like, I admit me. I'm a lunatic. I like, I'm what is going on? Like what in the hell? Are you kidding? Like I was kind of mad. Really dude? Like really? So I think part of it is usually kids with mental health struggles or even, you know, even autism, which is not a mental health struggle, but, you know, a different neurotype. I always want to make sure I put that in there. They usually have their person where they feel the safest around and able to really let that behavior go. Obviously, I have been his person. So I think that's part of it. You know, I wasn't there. But then the second part of it is it's incredibly structured and it's very low stimulus. So, you know, there aren't, ton- there's not like, stuff on the walls. It's a very sterile environment and they have a very structured routine that is, I mean, all but impossible to do outside of that environment. You can't do that at home, you know? So I think it kind of lets their nervous system just relax a little bit because they're able to like, I know what's coming next. It always, you know, this is what happens every single day in this order for this amount of time. And there isn't all the excess of stuff going on around them. So they say it's actually pretty common that some kids, especially younger kids, will show up and they do great. How long was he there for? Five days. So at the end of those five days, what were the conversations that you had? Yeah. So at the like meeting for discharge where they're going over everything, like this is all of our observations. This is all of our thought. I mean, obviously we're getting information each day, but like, this is the whole summary of what we think. They said, you know, on his paperwork, they said, we suspect that it's bipolar. And I was like, okay. And again, I had no experience with mental health, mental illness at all in any way, you know, nothing. And for me at that time, bipolar meant crazy. And I think probably part of it was the time. I mean, it was, you know, close to 20 years ago now. I'm not saying, I mean, there's obviously still lots of stigma, but Thankfully, more people are speaking out and even celebrities, a lot of very functioning people have said, I have bipolar and I'm functioning very well. I'm I'm not crazy, you know, but at the time I thought, dear God, 
they were telling me he's, he's crazy. Was that when you were checked into the Ronald McDonald house at the time? Yes. Okay. So you were checked into the Ronald McDonald house with your other baby. Yeah. Cause we, that's a hard part about mental illness. You know, if he had cancer or if he was there for my, you know, heart issue or, or whatever, or really sick, he had RSV when he was five weeks old and was in the hospital for a week. I never left. You know, I slept in a chair, pulled up next to his bed and was there the whole time. Well, you can't stay there. And we didn't have the money, you know, to be at a hotel for a week. So, and I wanted to be close to the hospital. My friend didn't live close to the hospital. So we were able to get into the Ronald McDonald house that very first night and stayed there the whole time with my other baby, my husband and my other baby. And obviously we had contacted our families back here in Virginia And my in-laws said that they would come down and be there with us and support us. And I was really grateful for that at the time because my mom and I have a much better relationship now, but she's never been, or she wasn't very demonstrative or, you know, like outwardly nurturing, whereas my mother-in-law kind of was. And so I thought this is exactly what I need. You know, I'm heartbroken. Like I need that soft place. And that is not at all what happened. So they showed up the next day, the next night, because I think it was, you know, eight or nine hour drive. And we went to their hotel and I, you know, I can see it in my mind's eye. And I don't know why, how we ended up like this, but my husband and I ended up sitting on the floor. I sit on the floor a lot, but somehow we ended up sitting on the floor and they were like in chairs above us, which is really bizarre. I don't remember how that happened, but it just feels symbolic to me in some ways, looking back at the scene. And that, I mean, it had been 20 minutes since we walked in the door and said hello to them. And they said they needed to talk. And my father-in-law just said, you know, Heather, I don't say this very often. I'm really careful about when I say this, but when I was driving down here, I really felt strongly that God wanted me to tell you something. And I was like, okay, I mean, what is it? And, you know, I'm dying for answers. Like, please, someone tell me anything, you know? And at the time, I I mean, both of my parents are pastors and I was very much involved in church. And I thought, I mean, give me a word. Like, you know, that's great. So he was like, you know, he, God told me to tell you that Samuel is behaving like this because you have unrepented sin in your life. And I was like, what? Like, what are you like, what? And I knew, like, I knew theologically, I knew practically, I knew logically that none of that was real. Like, I knew that that was not truth, but I allowed it to take root in my heart. I really did. And it messed me up for a long time because what he was saying was, this is all your fault. All of this is your fault. The irony is God maybe told him that. (laughs) I don't think he did, obviously. But the irony is, there was someone there. It was my husband who was next to me, who was cheating on me. Like, I didn't know, but you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. You were just pointing it at the wrong person. Again, I don't believe God punishes people at all. None of that, but I just find that ironic now. But because I had given them a level of like spiritual authority in my life at that moment, I didn't shove back. You know, I thought I want to receive this and see if there's something in it that's true. I did push back a little by saying, you know, well, there's a story in the Bible where there's a boy who's blind and everybody's asking Jesus, like, who sinned? Did his mom or his dad sin? Why is he blind? And, you know, Jesus said, nobody sinned. He, I did this so I could heal him and show my glory. And so I was like, what about that? They kind of poo-pooed it. They were like, that's great, but that's not, essentially, that's not your story. Your story is, this is your fault and you need to repent. And then somehow his mom jumped on and said, I, I, oh, by the way, I also want to tell you that you dress really immodestly and are causing mental lust, which was super bizarre because I always wore t-shirts and jeans. Like the whole thing was just insanity. Like it's laughable now, but it was very impactful and wounded me greatly. 
And my husband didn't stand up for me. He wasn't like, all right, that's enough. Y'all can't, we're leaving. You know, he didn't care. So the next morning when we showed up at the hospital, they were there and they wanted to go in and see him and I lost it. And I, you know, I say a lot of curse words now. but I didn't say very many back in those days. And I definitely had never cussed someone out. And I did. I told him, I said, I cannot believe that you, you know, we asked you to come here so that you could comfort us. And that's what you said to me. He was like, well, I probably shouldn't have said that. And which made me angrier. You know, I was like, if that's what you believe, then stand by what you believe, you know, like don't back down now. And he was like, no, it was just so, I don't know. It made me feel like he was a weakling and that. I don't know why, but it just disgusted me even more. So I was like, you know what? You can get the F out. You're not seeing him. I don't want you here. Go the F home. This was not helpful. I cannot believe you would do this to me. And they did. They left. And I I don't think we ever talked about it. Like, I don't think there was ever a, you know, we were out of line, nothing like that through the years later. I share that story because I think there are a lot of people who are told that God's punishing you or punishing your kid or somehow it's your fault. And it's just, it's bullshit and it's harmful. Yeah. Yeah. That's the last thing you need. What did your husband, what was the circumstance with your husband at the time? Nothing. (laughs) Like when I scan back over my life, like he was kind of always just there. He was never an involved or engaged dad. He just kind of, I mean, He's a potato. Like he doesn't have a personality, you know. (laughs) I just pictured a potato. You know, like that—that's perfect. There, that's him. That's him. You know, with with camis on. I don't think he really believed me how bad it was because he never saw Samuel was and probably still is scared of him. And so he never really saw that level of tantruming and meltdown like I did. So I think he probably at some level thought it was my fault too. He just kind of did whatever I said, like not that I was bossing him around, but you know, I'm like, they said, we need to go up and go to the doctor. And he's like, okay, you know, and we're going to go to the hospital in the morning. All right. Like he wasn't, there was no in-depth conversation. There was no, he wasn't emotional about it. I mean, he doesn't really have emotions, I don't think. So, you know, I'm crying and he probably tried to comfort me by, you know, like, oh, it's okay. But in some ways he plays a big part of my story because he was abusive and all that kind of stuff. But when I look back over my life, I'm like, but he doesn't. Like he literally was just there. So yeah, it was really all on me. Did you take your son home after that? And what did that look like? Yeah. So we, you know, we were discharged and he had had a good time and made friends with the doctors and nurses, you know, like, thanks for the vacation, mom kind of thing, you know? And so we went home and then you're supposed to have follow-up care, obviously. And that was our like jump into psychiatric care, which I'm grateful for the hospitalization because that's what finally got us on somebody's radar. But what was difficult was we still had to drive back to Augusta for all of those appointments. So they found us a practice up there that would see him at his age and we started, I mean, I was back up there the next week for a follow-up for a long time. It was at least every month because then they're wanting to try Let's try a little bit of medication to try to help him sleep. Let's try, you know, all this kind of stuff. And But the psychiatrist, as soon as he saw the bipolar diagnosis, he was like, oh, no, we don't. Hell no. Like we don't, he's three. Are you kidding me? Like we don't, we don't do that. So he took it away. And I, part of me was like, oh, thank God. You know, like, Wait, he I don't... took the diagnosis away? Yes. Yeah, he did. Did he replace it with anything? Mm -hmm. So what happens a lot with kids now, I will say on this end of it, I get why he took it away at some level because the reality is bipolar is a really heavy diagnosis and kids 
brains. I mean, he's a very young kid. Like he just arrived on earth, you know, he's only been here a couple of years and he's got a lot of growing and changing to do and, and developing. And so I think they don't like giving it even before the age of 18. A lot of doctors don't. My daughter was diagnosed this year with bipolar at 15, but I think that's probably because there's family history now, yeah, you know, yeah. and her dad has been diagnosed with bipolar once we got divorced. So I think that's the only reason they, they diagnosed her at that age, but they don't like giving it early. So what happens a lot with kids who have mood disorders and later get diagnosed with bipolar is then they're diagnosed with all the symptoms instead. So instead of having it as bipolar, they often, he had a diagnosis of a million of now we've got ADHD, we've got anxiety, depression. I think they gave him the, the diagnosis of ODD at one point. You know, they're giving him all the diagnoses that are essentially, those are all symptoms of bipolar and then start to kind of treat those symptoms until he was, they did give him back bipolar again, several years later, another doctor did, and then it was taken away again. And I, you know, did so much research and I wasn't, I didn't know how I felt about it. I obviously got past the place where I thought he was crazy, but I just, it didn't fully fit. Like there was so much there that did, but it didn't explain everything. And he was diagnosed with autism at the age of eight. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just autism. And autism fit, but it didn't fit fully, to be honest. I mean, even at that point, I was like, oh, I'll take autism. People love people with autism, which I know that that's not true either. But at the time, my perception was, right. well, if he has autism, people have a lot of compassion for people with autism. Like that's the new, you know, buzzword what's, of what's going on with kids. And there's so much support out there. Right. So I'd rather him not be crazy. He can have autism. So great. I'll take autism. But then he wasn't autistic enough for the autism community. You know what I mean? We didn't fit in with that group because oh, it was, yeah, we just kept falling through the cracks because a lot of the people who were getting together or supporting one another had kids who really were struggling with developmentally with autism, you know, with motor skills and he wasn't. So you come home, you have these diagnoses, you're going back and forth. What's going on in your marriage and what happens around eight when he does get that diagnosis? My marriage, which, you know, that's a a whole other podcast because he 100% is a narcissistic abuser and was a drug addict, but I had no idea because I didn't know anything about drugs, you know? So I totally missed it. I was so focused on trying to save Samuel, fix him, protect my kids, that my marriage was just, it was there. I, if you would ask me at the time, I would have been like, oh yeah, we have a great marriage. He's my best friend, like a hogwash. I, I think I really believed that at the time because I was gaslighting myself. I mean, I just, we're plugging along and we didn't really fight. Like we never really had fights and I wasn't really focused on that a whole lot. I was just so obsessed. Like I thought this is a problem and I'm moving in and out of like, still like, this is my fault. I'm a failure. I'm causing this. And because he has bipolar, everything was cyclical. And I remember I wrote so much like in journals and in blogs, and I would even use that word like this, you know, this behavior is really cyclical, which duh, very obvious now. But, you know, we would get to a place where he would be kind of normal-ish, you know, and kind of calm for maybe a, a week or two. And I would think I would start to be like, maybe I'm over-exaggerated. Like, maybe it's not that bad. And we're growing, he's growing out of it. And, it would hit me like a ton of bricks every time. Like I don't, I just kept, I called myself the hope addict because I was always like, it's, you know, it's going to get better. It's going to get, oh, it's great. It's great. Oh God, here it comes again. And then I would frantically, we need help. Please somebody help us. You know, this is a really disaster. He was hurting his siblings. I mean, and I also 
you know, I had two more kids. So I was getting pregnant and having more children. You know, I had the three kids while we lived in Georgia during that period of, of seven years. So yeah, I was just so obsessed with making sure that we could take care of him. Now he was put on medication for ADHD at one point, I think probably around four or five. And he ended up having hallucinations badly <laughs> for a long time. No one told me at the time that for people who have a mood disorder, the stimulant medications can create hallucinations. He thought that his curtains were attacking. So we had to take the curtains down. The curtains were attacking him. Like they were coming at him to attack him and there were monkeys in his bed, but they were not nice. Like they wanted to hurt him. So there were monkeys in his room that were, I mean, he was terrified. And this is a kid that like, wasn't really scared of anything, you know? Right, right. So for him to like, that was really scary to watch him be terrified. And like, there's, there's nothing there. That was awful, awful, awful. And then of course, you know, part of my brain is like, does he have schizophrenia? Like what is, what is happening during all this time between the time he was three and the time he was eight, he didn't have another hospitalization during that time, but it was the same behavior. You know, he's hurting himself. He's hurting me. He's going after his siblings, really dangerous behavior and awful tantrums. And I was a mess, but also obsessed with fixing it. For the parents out there who may be in some, a similar situation, what were some of the things that you were seeing that people might be going through and go, wait, my kid does that. Is that a thing? Like what were some of those things? The not sleeping is huge. So yeah, not sleeping is a really big one. And I've heard, you know, now that I have kind of this community going on TikTok, I've heard a lot of other parents say the same thing. And it's apparently it's very common in both autism and bipolar. Yeah, the not sleeping was one, but then I noticed he was very much seeking out sensory input. And the sensory integration disorder terminology was brand new around this time for him. And so I had found that online and started to do some research and I knew it matched, but it was so new. Doctors didn't really like it, even though it's so obvious and it very much goes with autism. But he would, the way the house was on base, he just walked into the front door and you could see all the way to the back of the house, like the, you know, the wall at the back of the house. And it went down the hallway where the bedrooms were. And he would run from the door to the back wall and just run into the wall. He would run full blast and slam himself into me. So he was desperately seeking sensory input. And he also, and to this day, he doesn't have any idea how strong he is. And I don't think he knows, like he would go to pat the kids when they were babies, like on their cheeks, but he's like smacking them. You know, he's not, and he wasn't, I mean, sometimes he was being mean, but he wasn't doing it to be mean. He just had no concept of like levels of pressure or strength and stuff like that, which, it, you know, it felt like he was this kind of big bumbling oaf at some level, you know, and he still walks like an elephant. You can hear him, you know, I have three floors and I can hear him anywhere. And I know when he's awake because he walks so heavy, which I think that's very common in autism. They walk heavier. They can walk on their tiptoes or like with a bounce, you know, he did not do well with his peers at all. He did fantastic with babies or like small kids and he did great with older kids, but he could not play with his peers. You know, it just, it didn't work. It always ended in a fight. And he has a huge imagination, but he didn't do imaginative play. His play was always really functional. I'm not sure how else to call it. You know, he wasn't like taking his little army figures and like, let's pretend we're having a war. Like it was like autism kids do lining them up or just setting them up to play and then never playing. He very, very, very much was oppositional and he was going to do what he wanted to do. I mean, no matter what, like I never did figure out what his currency was. 
There was no punishment that I could dole out or discipline or whatever that would prevent him from having bad behavior, for lack of a better word. And there was no reward that I could offer him that would motivate him. So I just very quickly learned by the time he was two years old, if he wants to do something, he's going to figure out a way to do it, which was really scary. You know, I feel like a lot of parents don't learn that they have no control over their kids until their kids are teenagers, you know, and I learned it very quickly. Like I can make a suggestion, but he's not going to follow it. He also, with the sensory piece, he hated having his head touched. I mean, it was so like washing his hair or haircuts or brushing his hair was a complete disaster. And because he was really, really cute kid, you know, strangers would be like, hey, buddy. And that would, you know, just set him off. Yeah, it was awful. And I'd be like, ah, don't touch his head. And he ended up his first haircut. I don't know. I think maybe he was a little less than two. And my mother-in-law was, you know, she just, he needed to get a haircut. And we took him and it was awful. And he screamed and screamed. And again, Heather today would have been like, that's it. We're done. We're leaving. But I think I was low-key scared of her. And so I watched him completely lose it, which breaks my heart now because he was probably terrified and not in pain, but not happy. And they ended up buzzing his head and I didn't cut his hair again for years. So when he went into kindergarten, he had hair, you know, down to here. And to this day, his hair is, his hair is as long as mine because it's still an issue. So all of those sensory things, but he was violent towards me and his siblings. What did that look like? How was it? Okay. So not to say that, you know, I have one of my sons has auditory processing disorder. And so he like twice a year will have these freakouts where they're not the full meltdowns, but they have, you know, it's like they become unreachable. 100%. And I would say that often and try to explain that to the doctors. I'm like, he's not with me when this happens. Not reachable. Like, no, he is not in the room with us. His body is here, but he is not in the room with me at all. It took me a while to get that. And so, you know, I did a lot of yelling and then I would shame myself because I would, you know, yell so much. I can't remember the last time I yelled at my kids. I mean, it's been more than a decade, but at the time, I mean, I was like, I have an anger problem. Like I really have an anger problem. And it was really fear, I think is what it was. And it came out as anger. But anyway, the violence was sometimes it, it was calculated. Like I felt like when he was melting down, he got focused on, uh, it's like, he's going to hurt me or he's going to hurt a sibling. He had, at one point, he had one of his brother up in the chair and had kind of pulled his leg out and was trying to break his leg. He pulled my hair. He would hit, punch. He punched holes in walls. I mean, even when he was little, he threw things. He destroyed things. He busted my lip so many times from when I'm holding him and he's, you know, headbutting. So I ended up with busted lip or a busted nose. And then some of the things he would say, it was terrifying. And the reason it was so terrifying is because there was, where did he pick it up, right? I was very careful with what he would watch on TV or videos or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Very strict about that because I was, big into the church. And so, you know, we're going to really monitor those things. He didn't go to daycare. He didn't have a babysitter. I mean, nobody would have taken care of him, you know? So the things he was saying were terrifying because I'm like, like they came from you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, I wrote it down when it happened is he told me one time and he's, it's not in the middle of a meltdown. Like he's just telling me because he's angry, but saying it calmly, you know, like he's mad, but he's not melting down. And he said, um, I'm going to cut off your head and pee in your neck. And I was like, When a toddler looks at you and says, I mean, I was terrified and he would chase me with knives. He would threaten his siblings with knives. I mean, I was, I got to the place where he would melt down so badly or I would yell and, um, I didn't even care. I was like, bring CPS. I don't even care. Like I, someone please help me. It was terrifying. I really thought 
I mean, I lived in like this anxiety ridden fight or flight all the time for years and years and years. Cause I thought he's going to hurt one of us badly. Like he could, he could kill me. That's a horrific feeling being afraid of your child and being abused by your child, which it took me a long time to say that. Cause I felt like it sounded so ludicrous, but that's really what was happening. And I couldn't leave, you know, you can't be like, like, this isn't, I can't break up with you, you know? So you just have to take it. And it was awful. It was absolutely awful. Hi, everybody. Ashley here. As many of you know, I got sober at 19 after going to many treatment centers. And years later, when my aunt passed away as a result of her addiction, my father and I and our business partner, Ian Crabb, started a telehealth company in 2010 called Lion Rock Recovery. We started with a PowerPoint and a dream, hoping to help people overcome barriers to treatment like affordability, accessibility, and privacy, which we were able to create in this program that we started. Today, Lion Rock Recovery, our little PowerPoint, treats people all over the world. We have over 200 clinicians, and it's an amazing program. We have an intensive outpatient program that has so many different time tracks to fit into people's schedules and specialties like professionals group, LGBTQIA, trauma, and many, many more. We are able to help people anywhere in the world with any schedule and all of it can be done privately. This is our dream come true. And Lion Rock Recovery is available to any of you who have family members who are struggling or if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody. Our admissions team is there around the clock for a free phone call, also a live chat on the website. There's so much there that we've worked so hard to bring to you. Please check it out, lionrockrecovery.com, or you can call the 800 number, 800-258-6550. Thank you so much. What happened when your then husband got deployed when he was eight? Yeah. So they sent him to Japan, but not us, because when you have an exceptional family member or a family with extra needs, they're like, yeah, we don't, there's not going to be able to take care of him there. So, you know, he had autism, which I didn't know yet, obviously, but he didn't do transitions well or change well. And so when they sent his dad away, I mean, it was horrific. I mean, all this behavior that I'm explaining to you, it's happening regularly. Like those things were not one-offs, you know, it was a lot of our life uh, was me locking the kids in one room so that I could try to corral him he, it got worse somehow. Somehow it got worse. I called my parents, you know, numerous times, but I called them and they came down and got my two sons. I was still nursing my daughter. They came down and got my two sons, brought them back to Virginia and said, you know, why don't you just try to finish, get him through the school year there. It was towards the end of the school year. Then come, you know, move up here. I said, great, we'll do that. I think I lasted three weeks and it it just got worse and worse because he was so violent and so out of control towards me and my daughter that I was like, I, we, we're not going to make it. So we moved back up to Virginia and moved in with my parents for a while while I looked for a house. And so now we're heading into the fall. His birthday is in October. So he become obsessed, which is another, it still happens to this day. It just looks different. And that's a trait of both autism and bipolar is he just gets locked in. Like he got locked in on that fish, you know? So he wanted a leopard gecko. And I told him, all right, we can have that for your birthday and made a paper chain so that we could take one off each day. Like, look how much shorter the chain is getting. It's coming. You're going to get it. It didn't matter. He wanted it when he wanted it when he wanted it. And so I went to the bathroom and I heard this huge crash and my mom screamed, oh, Jesus. And um, (laughs) she did. I mean, I considered not 
opening the bathroom door. Like I, I, bet, I, I, bet. Like, I am not going, like, I'm not going out there. I don't want to see. You. I don't want to know. So I opened the door and I go around the corner and he had pulled the rocking chair up to, they had a bow window in the front that was plate glass and he had just kicked right through it. And so a big, huge hole and there's blood everywhere because he hit an artery and he's just standing there. And my other three kids are standing there watching like, and they're upset. And he, you know, again, cause his pain tolerance is so high. He's not crying. He rarely cried. So I picked him up and took him into the bathroom and laid him on his back, pulled his leg up and wrapped it really tight and just put, you know, held it against my chest while I'm waiting for the ambulance. And they took us in. And I remember looking back and I'm seeing all my other kids kind of just standing there, like in the movies, you know, like watching this. And I, even in that moment, I was like, this is one of those traumatic core memories for all of them. And there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I can't fix it. I can't even stay and comfort them. Like I'm thinking like, this is a nightmare. Like I, someone please fucking help us, please God help me, you know, cause not, he's struggling, but my kids are being abused and traumatized by their sibling who they love and hate at the time. So we go to the hospital and the doctor looks at it and is like feeling around and is like, you don't feel that. And he's like, no. And the doctor's blown away, which that was, that was another one of those like ding, ding, ding. Cause apparently this is a very common thing in both autism and in bipolar is this like huge, high, insanely high pain tolerance. And for the doctor to be digging around in this kid's foot and same, he's not even like jumping. He's just like, no, no, it doesn't bother me. I feel like that's just another place that clinicians should say something like this is abnormal. You know, like he's not in shock. It's not adrenaline. Like this is an abnormal thing. And I'm even reporting to him. Yeah. He has a really high tolerance for pain. It's really crazy. You know, anyway, I get passionate about those things. I feel like there were all these like red flags along the no, way. That's why I'm glad you're talking about it. Cause I think I literally am going ding this person, ding this person, like, yeah. like you know, in my head and like, Oh, that's interesting. You know? Interesting. Yeah. And now that I know that I'm like, I feel like that's kind of a medical symptom or marker that why didn't you at least put something in your notes or so anyway. So the doctor sewed him up. And of course, at this point he's, you know, fine. He's happy. And said, we're going to have to do surgery, but it was swelling. So they wanted the swelling to go down a little bit, put him in a, a soft cast and sent him off to the psychiatric hospital again. So it was his second stay. And this time he was sent to a state hospital, which is a very different experience than a private hospital. But he, I mean, you know, we talk about that it's traumatic to go into psychiatric, you know, hospitalization. And it is. However, comma, he was having a blast. He was probably manic, you know, like looking back, he was probably very manic. And he was in a wheelchair because he couldn't figure out the crutches because that was, oh, that's another thing. He had some issues with motor skills. So he didn't ride a bike until he was almost 10. He couldn't, he could ride a skateboard, but he couldn't steer, pedal, and balance. He couldn't do all those things at once. He would fall over. So he couldn't tie his shoes till, oh gosh, I mean, old, 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 like maybe 12, whatever. He struggled holding a pencil. He struggled with writing. All things that I'm like, those again are all markers but unfortunately, sometimes you don't notice patterns until you look back. So he couldn't do the crutches and walk like he wasn't able to do it. So he was in a wheelchair. So he's wheeling around the hospital, getting tons of attention and having a blast, which I'm so grateful for because the hospital was creepy and I didn't, you know, I didn't like it and didn't feel good there, but he was oblivious and having a great time. And so they sent my ex or husband, sorry, at the time, they sent my husband back. He had been there for nine months. He was furious. I didn't find that out till later. He was very angry that they yet to come back, that I didn't just take care of it. He was very angry. 
that was the beginning of the end, but I didn't know because he didn't communicate it to me. And then that's when I found out about developmental pediatricians, which I didn't even know was a thing at the time. I mean, because you don't, you don't know what you don't know. I didn't know what resources were out there or what to even ask for. And I tell people that all the time that if I had known, I would have asked for a developmental pediatrician referral. Not that that doctor would have given it to me, but I would have asked for that, but I didn't even know they existed. So we were in Charlottesville. So it was for, you know, that's where my family lives. And it was for a doctor at UVA who was highly sought after, but her waiting list was, I mean, literally it was like nine months long. So they put us on the waiting list, but my parents knew some people who knew some people and they got us in, I mean, within like two weeks. And she started working with him and she, that's when he got the autism diagnosis. She was like, no, this is this is autism. Yeah, she was the one who, who diagnosed him with that and took away all the other diagnoses and said, it's autism. What did it look like from that point until when he went to treatment at 15? Yeah, so it started getting worse because he's getting bigger, he's getting stronger, you know, he's heading towards puberty. So, you know, not able to control his emotions very well at all. And so from... That so from eight, you know, he's almost nine. So from about nine to 15, I think he was hospitalized 10 times. Wow. My entire life was trying to help and fix this child, seeing every specialist, every counselor, every psychiatrist. We did equine therapy. We did, I mean, everything that I could think of or find to do. I was doing. I am yelling at the top of my lungs and saying, I can't do anything else. Please help. And even him getting into residential treatment, I know that there are other, you know, moms who want their kids to get into residential treatment and they can't get to that step either because insurance won't approve it or there isn't one that will take them. Let me tell you, it saved his life, residential treatment. I fully believe it saved his life, but it was not like, I didn't want to do that. Like I'm driving him there two hours away. And again, I'm like, you're a failure. You're a failure. You're a failure. When the reality is, and I wish I could go back and tell my younger self this, and I would love to tell you know any mom or, or parent who's listening, it's the exact opposite of your failure. It's you're willing to allow your heart to be completely pulverized by doing something that you would never choose, you would never want to do for your child's benefit, like to save them, to help them, to lay your life down so that they have a chance. It's the exact opposite of failure. But all I could think was, who sends their kid away? Like, you're such a fail. Like, how embarrassing. You know, you're such a failure. But I'm so grateful for it now. So grateful for it. What was the program? So he ended up in a facility on the coast of Virginia that has one of the longest programs in the country. And that's one of the reasons I picked it. Because they won't discharge you until they think you're ready to be discharged. So when I took him there, I mean, they were like, he could be here for 18 months. And a part of me was like, okay. And a part of me was like, are you kidding me? Like, and he was there for nine months. They do all sorts of different therapy other than just talk therapy. And I didn't really know there was therapy other than just CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what counselors usually use where you're talking through it. He did, was able to get DBT there. And because he was there, he had school, you know, school there and seeing all of his doctors and, you know, regular doctors and psychiatrists and his therapist was phenomenal. And they really, they connected. And I think she's probably the reason why he did so well. And then he just dug in and did the work. I mean, he worked really hard and I was super proud of him and went through grieving process of, I have bipolar and I'm going to always have bipolar and I'm going to always have to take medication and this really sucks. And he had thought he wanted to go in the military and you can't. And you know, walked through some of that. That was really hard for him, but it a hundred percent saved his life. 
I absolutely believe it. He even says to this day at almost 22, you know, he's like, there are moments that I miss being there. And part of, he was like, you know, and I've heard people say this about rehab that, you know, there's the structure of knowing what's coming next. There's being with people who understand what you've gone through or what you're going through. So you have, you know, these similar connections of trauma, those trauma bonds. And then for pediatrics, he didn't have his phone. You know, he doesn't have a phone and they had a video game system there that they could play every so often. But he read a bazillion, he loves to read. He read a bazillion books. They're playing games. They're running around. They're going to bed at the same time every day. And it was really good for him. What was it like those nine months with your other kids at home? Well, first I thought, oh, it's going to be so great. I'm going to be so productive. I'm going to make up for all this lost time with my other kids. We're going to do lots of fun stuff. It's going to be fantastic. And I tanked and I didn't realize it until later, but you'd been holding it, trying to hold it together for so long. Yeah. That I could finally crash. And I was depressed and drank too much and lost a ton of weight. And I didn't realize at the time. I mean, I didn't see it at the time that like I wasn't doing well, but I was not doing well. It was not, let's all have fun and do fun things together. What it did do was it allowed everybody to breathe. Like we were all felt safe. There were lots of really hard conversations, which I've had conversations with my kids on purpose from the beginning, validating their fear, their anxiety, their hurt, their anger towards him and at this illness, because I think that's important. Like that's part of this, you know? So there were conversations about that. And there were conversations from them to me of, I wish he wouldn't come back at times. And that's crushing. And I, you know, as a mom, you want to be like, don't say that. And I didn't. I was like, I understand. I understand why you feel that way. I went to see him every single week, which again, you know, two hours, one way minimum. Sometimes I went twice a week because we would have family therapy, which sometimes would just be me and him and the therapist. And sometimes it was with all the kids. But I think we felt safe, but there was also a lot of grief. And I think even for the kids, there was grief because for them too, it's like, whose sibling goes away? Like this is, there's nobody that can relate to that. None of their friends understood that, you know, so there's grieving there, there's shame there, there's sadness. And, and then I think they had some guilt too, because they were relieved he was gone. You know, like they felt safe and then you feel guilty because you feel like a bad person. What was it like when he came back? Like, I'd imagine you guys were nervous. What did the implementation process and the the reintegration process look like? So they let him come back. We did like, I think a couple of weekends or something like he didn't just all of a sudden he's discharged and comes back home. So we did do that and it went well. But, you know, then when he comes home, it's like it's all brand new and he had to adjust because, you know, I can't have, first of all, I 100% have ADHD. And as much as I love structure, I have a really hard time creating it for myself, much less my whole, you know, my whole family. So I'm trying, you know, to create this structure for him, but I can't replicate the hospital structure. And no, you know, now he's back where he's got his video games and a phone and all this kind of stuff. And so he ended up hospitalized again, I think at the eight week mark, which they said is very common, but they said it usually happens within the first six weeks. And we made it past the first six weeks. And I was like, oh yeah, we're great. It's gonna be great. But he did. And that was, that's his last hospitalization. He's done well since then. Yeah. It was hard because we had kind of like, even, you know, if you're military and your, your partner deploys, you have to, you know, fill in that hole and, and keep moving forward with life without that person. And then you have to open that space back up and let them back in and things have changed and we've all changed and you've changed. And He's responding to things differently and he's trying harder. And so, but living with him, it's only been in the last couple of years that that continual, I I call it, it was like a constant hum of anxiety that just existed in my body at all times. And that has just left in the last couple of years that returned. 
you know, and I, it, I'm sure it did for my kids too, is that even though we weren't seeing a lot of the same stuff, like he came back when, when he was 16, he's now almost 22. And literally it's just been probably in the last two years that I've really, my body's been like, I can trust this. Like he's not going to hurt you. It took years for my body to believe that he wasn't going to hurt me anymore. What are some of the skills that he's using or that he's used in order to change that threat? I don't know if this piece is a skill, but he 100% knows he has to take his medication. Just a few weeks ago, he was struggling and he was feeling suicidal again. And I, you know, you would think at this point, I would learn to ask right away. I don't know why I didn't. I didn't even think of it. He hadn't been taking his meds regularly. And as soon as he messes up his medication, he crashes. He's gotten a lot better at that. And he recognizes that if he's going to not take his medication, he's going to be hospitalized because that's what happens or he won't be here anymore, which is scary as a mom still. But he, so that's one of them is he knows he has to take his medication, which I think before he, like many bipolar people, he would take it and be like, I I don't need it anymore and stop taking it. He also recognizes that some of the self-care stuff that he needs to do. So he, you know, his room is in our basement and my basement's unfinished, but he wanted to be down there because that's where there's a lot of space and whatever. And so he'll come upstairs and do things regularly because he said, I need, I need some sunlight. You know, I, I know I need to be up here and not just be down in, in the basement. He knows he needs to get outside. He doesn't always do it, but he knows that he is very emotionally intelligent now. So He's worked really hard and is able to identify, you know, he can even say, I feel really irritated right now. And I don't really know why, but I'm feeling really irritated. So I just, just want to let you know, I'm feeling really irritated or I feel very, very sad. And I'm not sure what the reason is. I'm taking my medication, but I'm feeling really sad, like my whole body. So he can articulate it. He feels it. He communicates with me well about it. So I think that's a skill too, is being able to talk about what he's feeling and identify it. Even if, you know, it's not fixable, saying it out loud has helped him. He knows he needs to eat better, but you know, he's a 21 year old guy and loves soda and all that kind of stuff. He does know that he needs social interaction. And so like he, a few months ago, we found a a place here that does the, you can go to it and play Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons and all that stuff he's into. So I think he's has some tools. He doesn't always implement them. I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Welcome to all of us. Yeah. But he's aware in a way that I never dreamed that I would see of what he needs to do, of how he's feeling, of how he's coming across. As the years have gone by, less and less and less incidences. And I never thought that we would be here. When I think back to, you know, the kid that I was telling you was saying, I'm going to cut your head off, like, and would tell me I'm going to stab you in the stomach and kill your baby. Like, I thought that he would be in jail or dead. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I really did. What has it been like since you started telling your story? What has the response been? What's been surprising? This is probably where I might start crying. Ironically, there's so many people on comments on my TikTok publicly and privately who are living the same life and are struggling. You know, they're where I was 15 years ago. They're just so grateful to know that they're not alone, which is what I was, I was dying for it. I was trying to find a book, a blog, a documentary, a show, something like tell me that we're not the only ones who are living like this behind clothes. Like we can't be, we can't be, but because I couldn't find it anywhere, it just it added again to like, well, this is obviously your fault, you know, cause I'm, I'm not finding it anywhere. And so I know what that would have meant to me. It doesn't fix anything for them to not feel alone. 
but it does, you know, and it offers hope. And even, you know, there's a pretty big celebrity who sent me a message privately and, you know, she was like, I really needed to hear your story. And I've struggled with one of my young adult kids. And, you know, this is where we're at right now. And, you know, she's just broken. And I, I had not, you know, I have nothing to offer other than I'm really sorry. And I completely understand. And if you have any questions, let me know. I mean, people are hurting and they're hurting in plain sight because there are no GoFundMes for the kids who are in the psychiatric hospital. There are no 5Ks for the kid with anxiety. And it's, we're talking about it more because it's becoming such an issue that it's coming into our regular conversation a lot more than it ever has before. But there's still, you know, you don't post on Facebook, hey, my son's in in the psych ward again. You know, you just don't because it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. So of course, there's been a lot of people who are like, ah, how dare you? I can't believe you did this. And some of them, it makes me laugh. I would not have been able to take that 10 years ago, you know, it would have really wounded me. But now I'm like, man, okay, if you could have done a better job, uh, great, maybe you could have, but probably not. You know, now I'm, I'm proud of where we are and the relationship I have with him and of what I've done. And those comments just don't, they don't bother me. And they're definitely in the minority. You know, a lot of teachers who really thank you for sharing this because I need support. I need help. They're having to deal with mental health issues in the schools and they don't feel equipped. Were there things that you did that helped you heal? Did you do your own therapy? Did you do therapy with the other kids? Yeah, absolutely. So all of my kids have been in and out of individual therapy. We've had family therapy. I mean, we had family therapy even, you know, when he was way younger to try to help us work through this stuff. So yeah, therapy has been big. And then I did yoga really well for a long time. (laughs) I need to go back. It's been about five years. And I did that for about five or six years. And it was huge for me because it was the only place my brain wasn't talking because it constantly talks. And so I actually was surprised, like it would actually shut off in yoga. So I need to go back and keep saying that. But that was therapeutic for me because so much of the stuff that we're talking about and all this trauma and emotion, I mean, it hangs out in my body. Getting that out, I would feel like I got wrung out like a sponge by the end. You know, that was very beneficial. I haven't been able to do it a whole lot, but I try once a year to just go somewhere by myself. So just a few months ago, I went to an abbey and stayed, you know, where the monks are. And it's a silent retreat and it's on a big, beautiful farm in the Blue Ridge Mountains and just go there for the long weekend where nobody can talk to me because I love my kids and we now have fantastic relationship, but they all talk to me constantly. (laughs) So it was great to be able to be in a place where nobody was allowed to talk to you. Nourishing food, silence, nature, rest. I love that. I would like to have more time for myself. I'm not so great at taking care of myself. That's something I'd like to change over the next couple of years and get into a good habit. But yeah, the therapy, I've been in and out of therapy. I kind of go back for checkups and, you know, all right, I need to come back in. And and in fact, I mean, to be totally candid, I'm in a place now where I'd probably will start again. I don't know what to do with him now. You know, he's almost 22 and now he's an adult and he's doing well, but I don't really know how to parent him as an adult because he doesn't drive yet. And require things of him and and set boundaries because we've never really had that before ever. And, you know, now I'm like, all right, now you're a grown ass man and you can't be leaving these messes. Like this is ridiculous, you know, but I need, I, I need someone to help me a coach for this next phase of life. That outside help is really critical. And I do have, I've always had very close friends. I have a couple of very, very close friends who know that I come in and out of, I shouldn't say in and out of their lives, but you know, I can be silent in our relationships sometimes for a couple of weeks and they don't give up on me. You know, 
I heard a couple things and I, I, I list them and then I'd love for you to add to them if possible. I heard a developmental pediatrician. I heard there is long-term treatment for kids who are struggling in this way, that there are multiple assessments. I heard that the medication made a huge, huge pivotal difference and getting it right. Can you add to that list of things that made a difference for your son, for your family of like resources? Did you ever find the books? Is there a book now, you know, what are, no, still. No. And, and I started writing one when he was four and I've had a couple of agents, you know, say they were interested, but I don't think it's been time. I think that time is coming. I'm glad it hasn't, it actually wasn't published yet because when I started writing it, I thought I was telling his story, but that's not my story to tell. I'm telling my story. So I had to, you know, completely adjust, but it doesn't. And I think those kinds of resources aren't available so much from parents for a couple of reasons. I think one is that they don't have the time or the energy to put into that. There's just not there. Whereas for me, reading and writing is incredibly therapeutic and always has been, and I'm fairly good at it. So it's not a chore for me to do those things. And I think too, because they don't necessarily want to share that with the world. I mean, it's, it's personal, you know, and people get concerned all the time all over my TikTok that why, why are you sharing his information? And I'm like, he knows that I talk about him and I only, I don't share everything obviously. And I only share what he's comfortable with, but we need to talk about it and about the reality of it. So resources that helped us, I had no idea until he got into high school that social services could help us. I thought social services was for people who were really poor. And that sounds really horrible, but that's what I thought that it was. I thought it was a resource for people who didn't have resources financially. And it's not. Anybody can get involved. So in our area, which this is, I don't know uh, if this varies state to state, it may, but in our area and in lots of other places in the state of Virginia, through the social services department is what they call a community services board. So this area has a community services board. And within that community services board, they have mental health. So we came in, the school told us about it. We came in for an assessment. He's given a caseworker and that caseworker is not, I don't pay them. The state pays them and their job is supposed to be to identify resources that he needs for whatever he's dealing with. Because again, like I was saying before, you don't know what you don't know. You don't, if you don't know something exists, you can't ask for it. They got us connected to then another program, which in the the state of Virginia is called FAPT, F-A- PT. I can't remember what it stands for. Family assistant something team. I don't remember. And essentially the FAPT team is members of the school board. I think it's somebody from juvenile detention. It's, I think maybe a psychiatrist, maybe a teacher too. Like it's this whole group of community members in positions of authority who listen to your caseworker talk about what's going on with your child. And they come up with what they are willing to pay for and what they think is appropriate to help out your kid and help your child be a productive member of the community, essentially. So the idea behind it is great. Of course, there's lots of flaws and there's lots of turnover and it doesn't always work the way it's supposed to work and blah, blah, blah. But because we got involved with FAPT and they also then are connected to what's going on in the school and all of those things, that's how he ended up being able to get into residential treatment because then people were tracking what's going on with him and that now we're at the place where we're at the end of our rope of there's nothing else we can do that's going to make a difference except for residential treatment. So we had to go before this board. The case manager has to say, you know, this is the reason why I think he should be sent to residential treatment because they're going to pay for it. And they 
approved it, I should say. They only pay for the first 30 days because then somehow Medicaid, even though he didn't have Medicaid, he ended up on it for the rest of the time. But they have to pay for the first month. You know, I can't afford it. So that was a piece that I didn't even know was, I mean, how was I supposed to know that existed? Like nobody told me about it. And so somebody made an offhand comment in one of our IEP meetings. And I said, wait, what? And they explained it to me. And I immediately called and said, I want a case manager, you know, and that started ball rolling. And then because FAPT was involved and they also, before he got to residential treatment, they connected us with a a counseling group that provided us with intensive in-home counseling for him and for our family. So people who would come out to our house and do the counseling there, which we had never had before, which was helpful. And then when he came out of residential treatment and needed to go back to school, they were the ones who got him into the specialized school. And that would never have happened if we weren't involved with FACT. I think that's the only reason he graduated is because he ended up in this incredible schooling environment where the, you know, the teachers and the staff absolutely are obsessed with what they do and love these kids and give them a different way to learn. And it's much more individualized. Every kid should be taught this way. And that was fantastic. So, but if I hadn't been connected to this group, we would have never been able to get into that school. I probably wouldn't have even known the school existed. What's frustrating is that with mental health stuff is nobody seems to tell you like the counselors don't say there's also this and this and this and this and this available for you. And it's so piecemeal and you have to kind of figure it out on your own, which that in and of itself is exhausting. You continue to share this story on your TikTok. If people want to reach out to you for more information, where would you suggest they go? Yeah, I think TikTok is great. And it's Heather Hutchison 4. That's my handle. There's no N in Hutchison. That's always confusing for people. Yeah, and people can send me. I have my messages open so that anybody can send me a message. Also, you know, you can email me because I do workshops for all sorts of people, for teachers, for parents, and, you know, caretakers. Worked with police before because that's a whole other topic, you know, dealing with the police and mental health and even working with clinicians because the textbook knowledge is very different from lived experience. Yeah, I would love to connect with other people. And, you know, please feel free to email me if you have any questions or you'd like to ask about how we can set up either in-person workshops or, you know, through Zoom. I've done that as well. Or if you just would like to connect, I think that'd be great. I love, I love hearing from people because we're we're better together. You're amazing. I adore you. Thank you so much. Seriously. I really mean it. My heart, you know, you tried everything. I just think it's so important. I see these moms out there struggling and in the midst of it. And I'm so glad your story worked out. And for the people whose stories are still in progress or, you know, whatever happens, you've shown up. And so that's really cool. And you're showing up for other people. So thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm so proud of him. And I never, ever, ever thought that I would be at this place where I could say he's been stable for so long. And I really enjoy him. And I didn't for a lot of years, which was a hard truth to swallow. But I really, I really enjoy him now and I'm proud of him. And yeah, I want people to know they're not alone and I want people to have hope and to know that even if it never looks like what my life looks like at the moment, that it can still be good. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for what you guys do. This is fantastic. I really appreciate it. I am so impressed with Heather's tenacity. First of all, I'm excited I get to use that word. But second of all, I mean, talk about just like mama bear, like I am not taking no for an answer. Yeah, I was like, well, when I met her first, I was like, well, you guys would be buddies. The chemistry, I already can sense it because I think you guys have something shared in that. Literally the whole time I was just like, God, woman, you deserve such a break. (laughs) 
Yes, yes, please. Yes. Can, can we get this woman a some sort of spa right. package? Yeah. Can we just do like yeah. a all inclusive situation? Just get that all locked in for now, and I'll chip in if you guys want to chip in, and we can do this. Me, the listeners, Ashley will just chip in to get this sweet relaxation package. That's gonna. That's well, well deserved. So deserved. You know, as a mom, thinking about just begging people, please help us. Like it's hard enough to ask for help, to have to beg and knowing that as a mom, like there's no, you're not going to give up on your kids. So like you're just stuck. And then you have these other kids to protect. And I just, oh God, it was like, I will say there were a lot of moments where I could see my parents talking about what it was like with me and being extremely violent and destructive in the home and just really corrupting the family experience. And I think in some ways it was a positive thing that it was substance use because there was a formula and a place and there was infrastructure that understood that particular problem. And so that was handled. But I, I definitely heard some of my family's story of like my siblings being just so deeply affected and being glad I was gone, but sad I was gone and all those conflicting, afraid for me to come back, all that stuff. Yeah. And I just felt for her too, because I've worked in residential treatment facility where kids like her son were, and it's a really, really hard job. I went in with what I thought were very pure expectations. And then by the end of an eight hour shift, I like had no patience left. My nervous system was fried from the constant threat of potential violence happening and whatever. And it's like, that was her life. There was no like, I'm done at the end of the day. Well, at least I go home to my peaceful, quiet house. My coping strategy was I would just go home and watch an obscene amount of movies or TV shows or whatever, and just completely veg out in order to prepare to go back to that situation. And she never, she was never off the clock to have to go that long. And they, oh no, it's this. No, it's this. It's this diagnosis. It's this diagnosis. It's th do yeah. do oh, this. Yeah. It's this medication. It's that you know, like, and to just feel no relief. I just can't imagine how a person does that. It shows really like the strength that a person could have to see it in her. You're like, I don't know how a person could do that for so long. And it made perfect sense to me that when finally there was like some form of relief in which she's going to a higher level of care and hopefully there are people that can help, that it's not a sense of relief. It's just all that stuff that's been percolating now it just comes full force and hits her full blast and oh yep the analogy i love is it's a station wagon that's filled to the brim with stuff just absolutely to the gills all the way up you're, you're in the driver's seat it's all the way up to the roof of the vehicle and you slam on the brakes and everything that you've been storing back there comes and hits you in the back of the head. It made sense that, you know, that her nervous system was like, oh my God, I can decompress. And unfortunately, it wasn't the time where, you know, oh my, like you would hope that it would be relief, but the decompression factor makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, between the ages of eight and 15, he was hospitalized 10 times. Around hospitalization number five, six, seven, eight, those like, why did it not qualify then? You know, like there's so, so many, you know, why did it take 10, 10 hospitalizations? It's, it's an extraordinary amount of hospitalizations 
in a small child. I mean, I would think there's just so, you know, so much. Didn't make it into the episode, but I thought it was a really interesting thing that while her, her son was in that situation, she had this land that she was just like clearing out and it was like a huge process. It was just, she could work for eight hours a day clearing this land and then burning what she had cleared. What a kind of ritual and a yeah, and a visual thing. like yeah, and to be able to be like, yeah. and that's gone. It's burned. It's gone away. Whatever. Right, like, right. I have to imagine there was something incredibly therapeutic about that, even in the midst of like a really challenging, depressing time where you're scared. You're you don't know what's happening with your kid. You don't you know all those sorts of things. But I, I don't know. Somehow that image for me, I was like, huh. That part of things seems like it would be really helpful for somebody in that situation. Yeah, the physical aspect of and then like seeing the progress and those types of things are very cathartic. I really liked that she stopped on the points and the the symptoms such as high, you know, extraordinarily high pain tolerance, the obsession on the thing, like the hyper obsession. I hope that people listening were able to get something out of you know, hearing those symptoms, because I think that was an educational portion of it. Like, hey, this is a symptom of autism or of bipolar or both and things to look out for because most of us come into this like, I know there's a problem, but (laughs) who knew that was a symptom of whatever? Like, I just thought he was an ass. Yeah. Overall, I was just so thankful about how candid she was about everything, like the actual feeling she was feeling, what it really looked like, what their life really looked like, all the guilt that she experienced and all that. Like, because I do, I I have to imagine that situation. I mean, the truth is, at least for a while, I'd keep it probably pretty quiet. Like I wouldn't be sharing that everywhere. Like I, I wish that I was better than that, but I I don't think I would be, you know, like at least at first. Well, and you don't know if it's going to stay, right? So you don't want to be out there like, this is great. Like you probably wait till you have a little footing. Right. Or I don't necessarily want to like have to announce to every parent like, hey, yeah, my kid is I'm afraid for them to come to your birthday party because like they're very violent. That's a hard thing. You know, you I think you'd be hoping all the well, those are phase or maybe we get a medication or we you know, we have some solution that comes and then like I don't have to have that conversation. But I'm also I'm just so thankful that she is. I'm thankful that she is sharing what she's learned in a very public way that she's sharing it with teachers and all yeah. kinds of people like oh, that. Oh yeah, that she's teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that she met like it I mean duh, but like that she mentioned that teachers are so affected by it as well. It's not their kid and they're still experiencing it and <laughs> I'm I'm still stuck on the birthday party. <laughs> one of my boys, he went through a biting phase, like a legit biting Ooh, phase, like tough. biting kids at the park. And some of the kids' friends would, <laughs> Davis would run up to them and they'd go, no bite, no bite, you know, even before you even done anything. Oh. It was so, and I was certain that he was going to be 25 walking around just biting. <laughs> yeah, this was... I was nobody. This is a a forever thing. My child now is going to bite everyone. And like, do I need to, you know, duty to warn like this, (laughs) you know, I've birthed a shark, but so I was picturing that. Oh no. He would go to parties. So I was like, please don't bite anyone. Please don't bite anyone. 
Do you have any dog chew toys? Yeah. You know, as she mentioned, if you're interested in working with her in some capacity or having her kind of tell more about her story, we're going to link the her email address in the show notes so you can go and find her there. We're rooting for you this week because we always are. If you're in this situation or if you're in a similar situation, you can feel so challenging if there's chaos at home and you're. it's a place where you want it to be peaceful and you want to have respite there. And maybe that's not your situation right now. And if that's you or we really are rooting for you and we're sending positive energy your way. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with this week? Yes, definitely go check out Heather Hutchison, no N. Please share this episode with others. I think it's an important piece of getting the word out about systemic options and resources for mental health struggles in our society. I don't think this is an isolated incident. The more we can get the conversation going about the topic, the better. So please, please share this episode with other parents or people that you think might be able to be part of the conversation or want to become part of the conversation. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.